A few weeks ago, I was sitting down with a guy, he's around my age, to give you a little bit of context, I'm like 27, so I'm not that old, um, but I'm almost 30. And so kind of my friends, my community are people in a little bit older, closer to 30, 40, and then I have friends that are in their early 20s. And so I'm very involved here at the Young Adult Ministry. So I hang out with a lot of 20-year-olds. And these are people that are a little bit older than you. So they're going to be how, they're going to be your season, where they are in their season of life is probably where you're going to be in a couple years, in four or five years. And so it's very revealing what I learn about them. And the conversation usually kind of is like this. Um, I did the thing. I pursued the good life. I went to the college. I committed to the relationship. I started the job. I got the career. I got the car. I got the house got the Game Boy or whatever it may be. I got the thing. I got the, whatever, whatever you can represent as the good life. In this particular situation, it was this guy who, who went to college, like he did, did it the right way, made the good grades, and graduated, and he's sitting across from me, and he's disappointed. He's not satisfied. He's not content. He chased the good life, but his life is a very good that's for many of us sometimes if we chase things, we chase this concept of the good life. I have to admit, I'm one of those um, still loving Jesus, but I remember in high, in, out of high school, like my dream was to play college football. Like it was, I mean, I was I started at a very young age and I was the grinder. Like I worked really hard, worked out. I was very, it was football was everything. It was year round. It was what I was obsessed with. And I went to college. I finally got a I got a scholarship and I played um, my freshman year. I was, I was a true freshman. So within a couple months of being a high schooler, I'm, we're driving off to West Virginia to some preseason game. And we get on the field and there's a guy in front of me. It's like this back and forth. He's like a senior. He's, like a, he's a grown man. I'm like a little boy. And so there's this competition back and forth. Rather, he'll play, I'll play. He'll start, I'll start. Well, the coach starts him, and he gets on the field, and you can tell he didn't really watch film. Like, he wasn't really prepared for the game, and what happens when you aren't prepared? You perform poorly, and so he did. He really could have, was a casualty on the field, so coach was so desperate, he put the 18-year-old in to the game. I'm, like, super excited, right? Like, this is my whole life. This is a good life. Like, this is, this is good. Like, I had dreamed about this my entire life. I was in the weight room, the first one in the weight room, last one to leave, like worked out, I mean, dreamed about this, listened to, you know, the music, the Kanye West, whatever it may be, just dreamed about my moment playing college, right, watched the movies, think about this moment, and here I am on the field, the lights are bright, the crowd is amazing, it's electric, thankfully I did prepare, and I, I knew what was going to happen, I knew what was going to play, if you know football terms, that the quarterback would fake the dive, he would keep it, you know, and so the ball hikes. It's my first play in college football. This is my dream, right? Hike, I run, tackle the quarterback, throw him on the ground, and I stand up. Like, this is the moment, right, you dream about. And I'll be honest with you, this is so true. It was the most disappointing feeling in my life. Disappointing feeling in my life. The, that moment made me sad to the point that I remember I, I, I wept when I drove, when we got on the bus and went home because I had banked my entire life on this moment and it never gave me the contentment, the satisfaction that I thought it would. I was empty. And so what we're gonna talk about tonight 
is the contrast of chasing the good life compared to what Jesus offers is the blessed life. The blessed life is a beautiful, beautiful image that Jesus really paints for us in the series and the Beatitudes. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do, turn them on, turn to them, to Matthew 5. I'll give you a moment. And we're gonna see Jesus really um, show us the blessed life by, by really going, starting this off, the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, probably the most famous sermon ever preached, the best sermon ever preached. I wish I could have been there, it would have been amazing. And this is kind of tethered to this series we're going through called Blessed. Um, we're walking through the Beatitudes that Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount. And just to give you a little bit of context, I think this is important for us to understand as followers of Jesus is that this is at the height of Jesus' ministry. If you're in your Bibles, and I hope you are, if you look at Matthew 4, starting in verse 23, to kind of give you a little context, this is kind of where Jesus is in his ministry. It says, Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria, so they brought, so they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases, intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, the paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee to Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And so what we see here as we get to Matthew 5, what we're going to be talking about is that this is the height of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus is demonstrating his power and authority all over, like he's, he's making waves as they say. People are blown away. They want to see about him. And who are the people that want to know about this Jesus? It's those that are afflicted, those that are in need, those that are impoverished, those that are marginalized, set to the side, the last, the least, and the lost are wanting to know more about this Jesus because they're looking for hope. They're looking for something else. They're looking for the good life. And what's beautiful is Jesus paints a picture of the blessed life. You see, the religious systems of their day um, were neglected, those in need. And that was one of Jesus' frustrations. So we see here the misfits, the outcasts who were coming to hear Jesus preach. And he starts off with the Beatitudes. And I wanna read them tonight. We're gonna cover two together, if you're following with me. Starting in verse one of chapter five, it says that when he saw the crowd, so he's at the height of his ministry, he's seeing this crowd, the numbers are staggering what people estimated how many people were there. Like would have just blown away a Travis Scott concert. I mean, you put it, the Billie Eilish, whatever it may be. Like you think the biggest person of your time right now, right? Like this was beyond anyone's expectations. So Jesus sees this crowd and it says right here that he went on the top of a mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Just to give a little bit of uh, clarification, the, um, the word humble, it can translate gentle, or um, meek, and so we're gonna stay with our teaching tonight in the word meek. So say the word meek for me, or still awake. Say meek again. Really good, awesome. So 
we see Jesus breaking down the Beatitudes. Now, these Beatitudes statements, this term means blessedness. It's all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, the Greek and the Hebrew really refers to this word blessed. It's not prosperity. It's not all these other conjuring up these ideas of happiness and wealth and everything. It's really this divine favor conveyed to man or well-being before God's presence. Blessedness is the favor of God in scripture. And this is what Jesus is getting to. So another way to translate this word could be happy. So if it's helpful for you, you can read this, say, you know, happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the weak, etc. Now, I wanted to just share, uh, Dallas Willard gives this definition of blessing. I think it's beautiful. It's so simple yet so profound. Dallas Willard said, blessing is the projection of good into the life of another the projection of good in the life of another. And I love this is that, and you gotta understand something, that we're created to be blessed. Like God wants to bless you. That's pretty profound. Look in Genesis 1.28, it's not on the board. I added this later. It says, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and God gave to, said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the, of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God blessed them. See, we are created to be blessed. We cannot function without it. John Tyson says, the Bible shows us that when we receive a blessing, it changes the nature of our lives. This is a beautiful thing, that working from a place of blessing leads to a completely different life than working for a blessing. And so we understand that what's the problem here? Why do we not live and function in an existing world where there is blessing? Well, it's because of sin. Sin fractured all of that in Genesis 3. While we were created for it, we, we failed to experience it because of the, this word we see, the pattern throughout the Old Testament, cursing. There's now a cursing because of sin that was ushered into this world because of Adam and Eve's rebellion. And so there has to be some change. There has to be hope. Well, the beautiful thing is that Jesus comes and he says, I want to bless you through a relationship with him. So the, the Beatitudes describes a person that puts their, their faith and their trust in him and as a result has received God's blessing and operates out of his blessing for the rest of their lives. It's this really beautiful thing. It's much deeper, much more beautiful than any external blessing that we could receive. So we oftentimes think of blessing as these things that we possess, right? We have the money, the car, the success, maybe diploma or, or certificate on the wall. Like that, that maybe seemed the word blessed, right? We kind of, what we do is we kind of, um, we take this word, we water down the word blessing. Blessing in the Bible is much deeper, much richer. It's an external thing. And so Jesus is really, when he's at the Beatitudes, he's going after the heart. He's coming after our hearts because ultimately life change happens when there's heart change. And he wants to change our hearts. He wants to transform us so that we can live in human flourishing. True happiness the way God intended. And so these beatitudes really describe what it is to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Now there's something important. Jesus is not like writing a help, self-help book. Like as you read these beatitudes, these aren't like to-do lists. Like if you do these certain things, then you will somehow be blessed. That's not how it works. It's only through a relationship with Jesus. You see, the Beatitudes aren't the gospel. It's what the gospel produces in our lives. 
And so as we move forward, I want us just to understand the necessity. When we read the Beatitudes, these are existing attitudes, the condition of our hearts for those that follow Jesus. So as followers of Jesus tonight, if you are a follower of Jesus, I want you to think about and be challenged by, is Jesus describing you? Are you meek? Do you mourn over sin or talk about? If you aren't a follower of Jesus, I wanna encourage you to think about and consider the blessed life that Jesus offers. This is something much deeper. And also this is the beautiful thing is that we can come to Jesus, we can know this, in need, we're mourning, we're oppressed, we're hungry, and he will bless us. Now, let's look real quick. As we talked about last time we were together, for those that weren't here, which is like half the room, um, we covered the first beatitude, which is the poor in spirit. And Blake did a phenomenal job of just really setting this series up. And, and so what we see is that Jesus came to bring happiness. Jesus came to bring a meaningful life. And the key to this happiness is to be poor in spirit. Blake says that the blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He is declaring that in order for us to enter God's kingdom, we must first recognize the other worthlessness of our own spirituality before God and the inability of our own works to save us and make things right. Therefore, we must recognize our need for Jesus because when we are poor in spirit, we are rich in Christ. So it means to acknowledge that we're spiritually bankrupt before God. And so something has to satisfy that void in our lives. And what we come to is is Jesus. Like this is the first step. We have to realize that we need something, that we aren't enough, that things aren't enough, that we need something outside of ourselves. And that is Jesus, he says. And then what follows naturally is verse four, which we're gonna get to tonight. You see, those that mourn, like there's something about the Beatitudes that sounds paradoxical. What that means is, is that they seem like two things that contradict each other, yet they're, they don't. And so for the, it's kind of weird when Jesus says blessed are those that mourn. Like it's like saying happy are those that are unhappy. What we're gonna see as we're gonna wrap is, is that how that makes sense and how those are comforted when they do mourn. You see, Jesus describes the blessedness of those who confront their sin and its consequences both within their lives and the world around them, which naturally flows out of a person that is poor in spirit. So you read verse four, if you would look at it with me. See, to mourn are those that are saddened by the things that sadden God. Like that's what Jesus is getting at. For us to be, our hearts should be broken for the things that break God's heart. Like we look at the the poverty and the war that's happening around us. Even if you get online, you can see some of the things that's happening within the world, within our country, within our neighborhood. And what it does is it it, it should, as followers of Jesus, it should sadden our hearts to see sin and its effect and its existence within this world. That people experience suffering and pain. We should be saddened by the injustice that seems to prevail within our world. Like that should break our hearts. And that's even why as a church, we pray for those people in need because it breaks ours. Because it also, because it breaks Jesus. It breaks Jesus' heart, breaks God's heart. John 11 gives us a glimpse into Jesus' heart. And it's this beautiful passage. And, and really it's been centered around just two words, like the shortest verse in the Bible. And his friend dies, Lazarus dies. And as he approaches Lazarus' body and he's, he's about to bring him to life, we see this moment where it says that Jesus wept. 
And why did he weep? Like, why would Jesus cry and grieve within his heart over something that he easily can reverse? I believe that in this text, it shows us that he's weeping over death and its existence. He's weeping over sin and its effect because he didn't cause it, but he came to cure it. And that's the beautiful thing here as we see is the love of our savior, our king. Like to see a little, get a glimpse, a window inside of the heart of God. Like that's why we go to Nicaragua, right? That's why we spend money and time going to another country to serve there. Why? Because there's a burden. Because we realize that what God's done in our lives is that because people matter to God, they should matter to us. And so out of that compassion and that empathy that we acquire within our lives, we act, we respond out of that love for other people that are different than us. That's the beautiful thing about God's love, that it goes beyond borders, that it goes into another country and you spend time sharing the gospel, telling people that God loves them, serving them for free. It's because out of that love that you have, and you know what it, you know what it is, and the beautiful thing is, it's seeing Christ's love within you. Because when people experience that love, that selflessness, they're experiencing God's love. And that's a tangible way in which we do that. See, God is a, is a love, what one theologian says, that God is a missionary God. He's out to seek and save the lost and go wherever it is, both the neighborhoods and the nations, to save people, to invite them into relationship with him where they can experience the blessed life. You know, one of the things that's very interesting, I was reading this book and it was, it was doing some research. It was in a Christian book and it was about one of these terms I never heard before. It's called compassion fatigue. Have you ever heard of it? It, was, it blew me away. I was like, this, this is a thing, compassion fatigue? And what this doctor has discovered is, is what happens when we're overly exposed to human suffering. And he says this right here, that we're born with compassion as part of human condition. Understanding the world from another person's perspective is critical. But he says compassion fatigue becomes an issue when our ability to help are low, yet our expectations regarding the outcome are high. And so when I was reading this, there's a lot of the things to pull from it. Is we live like in a world where we're overly exposed. Like we get on our phones, we get on Facebook, and we're constantly like seeing Joey got married, Susie had a baby, and then this has happened in this country this earthquake, whatever it may be, this natural disaster. And we're constantly exposed. And I truly believe this, that it's the enemy's way of making us numb, desensitized to sin and its effect. That's the enemy's way of countering the compassion that God, God instills within you by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's to constantly expose us to it. You know what we do? And this is what the idea of compassion team does. We get so exposed to sin and its effect that we don't care. We stop caring. We become stationary. We don't respond. And so what we have to do is we have to, number one, combat that by not being exposed to it. It's not natural for us, it's not healthy for us. But it's also to realize that, that we need to lean in to that love that God has given you for other people. To fulfill needs, to respond, to be reactive when there are needs in front of you. And to realize that is God's love within you that's working, it's infused inside of you and it best expresses itself and those tangible ways when you're able to love people. But it's ultimately out of a burden of just being broken for sin and its effect. Rescuing those that need to be rescued. Helping those that need help. 
You see, what the enemy wants to do is he wants to us to gradually shift towards indifference and hate. And so we have to combat that by acting out in love, as Jesus says. This is what is produced when we walk with Jesus. Second is most importantly that before we can mourn brokenness around us, we must mourn brokenness within us. Like before we can look at the world around us to see its brokenness, we have to be reminded that we're also sinful people, that we're not perfect, we're not better than, that the sin that dwells within us has separated us from God. It has, a, it has created this void between us and God that only Jesus can fulfill. And what, what the gospel does is when you hear about this, you hear about this need, you feel this conviction, right? It's because God is stirring with you the, 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 the ability to want to respond to its message. And it, it goes beneath the surface of just good behavior or this idea of moralism, that the gospel or being a Christian is just about being a good person. No, it's about coming to life, being born again because of Jesus, about putting our faith in, faith in him. It says mourning is, is beautifully reflected in David. In Psalms 51, reflecting on his sin to Bathsheba, if we know this, he's, that David is in a really tough spot. He's done some pretty horrific things. This is probably his worst day. And he pleads and laments with God in, in Psalms 51, verses one through three. And it says, have mercy upon me, O God according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgression, my mistakes, my messiness, my sin is ever before me. And so we see David's like coming to God and he's, he's broken by his sin. Because you can't hide from God and David knows this and he's lonely, he's disappointed. He has to deal with sin and its effects in the world around him, those closest to him, and he sees it evident everywhere. And he's broken, but I love what he says here. This is what I think is truly so important for us is, is to see as followers of Jesus and those that want to come to him. This is what God ultimately wants. He doesn't want us just our good behavior. He doesn't want us just go to church, just read the Bible or do these activities. This is what he wants. And this is what David declares in verse 17. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humble heart, God. And so what, what, what David is saying here, and I think what's connecting so well to Jesus is the fact is that part of mourning our sin is moving away from self-assurance and self-sufficiency and being broken for our own sin and coming to God with our broken spirit. And this is the best part. You're like, all right, this is kind of heavy, right? This is not the fun part. This, it's what attached to the beatitude. What makes a person that mourns happy? It's what makes a person that mourns blessed. It says, for they shall be comforted. Jesus says that those that mourn, they will receive God's comfort. That's a beautiful, beautiful promise. And this is really the big idea of this, that what brings us to tears will lead us to grace. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. First John 1, 19 says that, man, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just so that he will forgive us of our sins and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness that God wants us to come to him humbly, admitting our, our need, that we aren't the way we ought to be, that we're broken and that we're messy and that we aren't sufficient on our own, that we can't do things in life on our own, and he is willing to accept us. 
Because ultimately the gospel is about God coming down in flesh and pursuing us to have a relationship with us. And part of this is knowing that, that Jesus says, man, if you come to me in your brokenness and admit your need for grace, I will give it. I will extend it. To paraphrase verse four, it says, blessed are those who mourn their sin for God will forgive them and restore them to the life he intended for them to have. When I was uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was um, with my son. If you don't know, my son is almost one years old, April 4th. And so I'm a, I'm a new dad and I'm learning many things about being a dad and about baby's behavior that's just different. It's odd at times. You're trying to like understand why, why are they doing that? Right now, my son is in a phase of banging his head on the wall and on the floor. And, and I'm not sure what's happening. And it makes me mad that he's hurting, but I don't know how to talk to him. He can't talk to me. He's so young. But there's a moment where uh, we were on the floor with Elijah, my son, and he's, he's, he started crying. He hit his head on the floor again. He's, and he started crying and... and um, he got mad. You know, like when babies get super, they, they don't just get sad. They get like angry and mad. And so he, Elijah's doing this and he does the odd thing. Like most of the time when we get mad, we like, to, we like distance, right? We kind of want to be by ourselves. But when he gets mad, he ah! and just starts crawling to me. Like with like this angry, like he's angry. He just wants to crawl towards me. And so he comes towards me. And, and I remember I asked Maggie, my wife, I said, why does he always do that? Why is it when he's mad, he always crawls to you? And she said this, she says, because you're safe to him. Because you're safe to him. And I thought about that while I was preparing this message, is that's what Jesus is saying. Is that we can come to God in our brokenness and our messiness, knowing that God is safe to us. That he wants to love us, he wants to restore us, and he wants to have a relationship with us. To quickly go through Verse five, it says, blessed are those of meek for they will inherit the earth. So out of this meekness, this beautiful relationship that we have with God where we experience God's comfort, we see here is that the blessed life belongs to a person that is meek or humble. The word again I said is, is those that are meek and I think this is the best translation. Now what does meekness mean? Is meekness is not weakness, it's just the opposite. It's, it's strength under control. And so what this is saying is that out of our obedience to Jesus, that, that he rules and reigns as our king and our Lord, as we submit to his authority in our lives. And so we don't, we, we are strength under control. We harness our power and our strength and our ability, or we, we express self-control. We resist the urge to act out of our frustration and anger. The best way I would describe this, if you watch the NFL, they have some of the most strongest, biggest, fastest human beings to walk planet earth. Yet what's so interesting is, the fact is, is that they harness their strength and their abilities under one thing, under the rules and the officiating. And so what this means for us is that part of following God is that we learn to submit God, to God's rule and reign in our lives. And see, oftentimes we conjure up this idea of being meekness as being a doormat, being wishy-washy, being a pushover. And that's not the case at all because we can look at Jesus as the ultimate example of meekness. Like he says, he refers to himself gentle and lowly in heart, yet he stood against the entire power structure of his day, like resisted public opinion, 
resisting political and religious authorities, enduring unbelievable pain and torture at the, at the hands of his captors. And, but in spite of his enormous strength and power, he was called the epitome of meekness. And so part of this being in the kingdom of God, those that belong to the kingdom of God, those are those that are meek. Paul says that this right here is, is, is one of the texts is Colossians 3, 12 through 13, is meekness is expressed the best in our relationship to other people. How we treat other people, our submission to God is shown in how we love people and express compassion. He says it put on then God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also put, you also must forgive. So Paul is saying here that, that, that once we have come to know ourselves and we begin to mourn that we're, we're, like, we're not what we should be, and we desperately need God's forgiveness. Part of that, being the chosen one, being God's chosen people, is that we extend forgiveness. We treat people as we should, as God has called us to. And the attached promise here is that we will inherit the earth. David says, the meek shall inherit the earth, and they shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. We can't go into it very long, but this beautiful image of land, it could be translated land or earth, is this of value. It, it represents peace and victory and assurance. It's a blessedness that we receive as followers of Jesus when we are meek. That will be our eternal inheritance. So tonight is really this, that Jesus gives us a picture of the blessed lights, invites us into it. We'll receive his comfort and eternal reward. As I was preparing tonight's message, I was thinking about my own life, how I have failed in these areas how I've failed to mourn my sin in moments where I can sometimes act as if sin doesn't exist in my life. You ever pray to God and you're like, man, like God doesn't know what I've been up to or what I've been thinking. Like somehow we'll, we'll pray to God and then like, it's like, yeah, we're not gonna talk about that, right? So, you know, swipe, the, you know, we're, let's just mean you, God. Just don't worry about what I just did, right? Or even meekness. I think about the fact that sometimes I don't act in meekness. Like if I always wrestle with the fact that it's like, would people describe me as that? And it's not being, you know, it's not being a doormat, like I said before. It's not being passive, but it's demonstrating self-control because God said so. And how we treat other people, when people mistreat us or they hurt us, whatever it may be, is to show that meekness in our lives. But it's hard. But the beautiful thing is that Jesus, through the Beatitudes, perfectly models each and every one of these. Ultimately, he fulfilled these and he's the epitome of what we want to become and what we want to be. And again, these aren't the gospel. It's what the gospel produces in our lives because of God's grace. And so there's two really call to action in your life tonight. One is to walk in meekness. To walk in meekness. As we read this and you're, you're at your small groups, y'all will talk about this more and flesh this out. But what is Meekness. And does that, does that describe you in your, in your circles, in your family, in your schools? Does that describe the person you are? And, and could you ask God, and this is the second one right here, is to, to run to God, to receive God's comfort, and to confess that, God, I'm not meek. I'm proud, I'm, I can be prideful, I can be vengeful, I can be angry, whatever that may be, and ask God to work in your life to reflect Christ. I love about the Beatitudes is it's the blessed life that we've talked about. 
And it's, 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 it's internal change, it's a transformation that happens in your heart because of relationship with Christ. And as we talked about those that mourn for they will receive comfort, they shall receive comfort. If you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus, I would encourage you to do that. If you haven't made that decision, understand that you can receive God's comfort, that you draw near to God, that he is loving and faithful enough to draw near to you. So how does, what does that look like? Well, there's many ways in which we describe it, but it's simply this. It's coming to God. It's admitting that you aren't who you should be, that you're sinful, that your sin has put Jesus on the cross. It's believing that he is faithful and he's just enough to forgive you, that, that he exchanged his life for yours and ask God to forgive you, to transform you and to walk with him to surrender your life, to put down your weapons, to put down your agenda, to put down the things in your life that are keeping you from following God fully and surrender it all. It's that simple, but it doesn't stop there. It's continue walking with him, being his apprentice, being a disciple. What is that? It's to learn from Jesus, to be with him, to be like him, to become like him each and every day. And it's a journey worth living and following after it's the blessed life that he promises to those that will surrender to him and put their faith and trust in him, in, him, in him alone. Let us pray. Father God, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your love and your kindness. Thank you, God, for, for just your word, Lord. And may it work tonight in, in groups. God, may we reflect on what you're trying to communicate to us because that's ultimately what we're after, God, and how we can respond to it in our lives it's not just the knowledge, God, it's the applied knowledge. It's the response to your word. Lord, I pray for anyone tonight who hasn't put their faith and trust in Jesus and even me talking about that makes them uncomfortable in this room tonight because they doubt and they worry if they have. I pray, God, that they will be strong enough to open up about that with their leaders, that they will ask their leaders to walk them through how to make that decision. And God, that they will that you will surround people in their lives to help them in their journey of becoming more like you. Lord, if there's anyone tonight that if we talk about meekness and we have done it briefly, but they are convicted and maybe they don't express that in their own walk with you, may God, you humble them and may you give them grace to, to walk and to reflect you in their lives. Thank you for the night. Be with each and all the leaders in discussions. In Jesus' name, amen.